Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. This is episode 10, where we're going to be doing an interview with super middleweight world title challenger, John Ryder, and his strength and conditioning coach, Dan Lawrence. Now, the reason for doing this podcast is not only to have a catch up with John and talk about lockdown and what he's been doing to adapt and uh, his kind of future ambitions, uh, 2020, but it's to talk to him about his strength and conditioning and how that's had an impact on his boxing performance with his recent run of form that's seen him box Callum Smith perform really well and you know show that he is a world-class operator. At Boxing Science and on our podcast and various stuff on Instagram, it's always coming from the strength and conditioning coaches or the nutritionists or the physiologists on how impactful strength and conditioning can be. But what really matters is how the athlete perceives it, how he sees how it's improved his physical performance and how that translates into his boxing. Also, what confidence does he take from that, seeing the numbers and being able to give him that confidence and that ultimate belief that he's in the best shape possible on fight night. So we're going to ask John a series of questions about strength and conditioning, what's his favourite aspects of it, how it's kind of changes, how he approaches to uh, training. And then Dan's going to give us an insight to some of the more technical stuff. What are the actual methods that Dan employed with John to help get him fitter, faster, stronger, moving better, getting his recovery and nutrition right, so then he is in the optimal shape come fight night. Before we get on with the interview, I'd like to ask two quick favours. One, if you're not a subscriber to the podcast channel yet, please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes. The second favour... If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. The higher ratings that we get, the higher we go on the podcast chart and our podcast becomes more accessible. We get more views, we get more listens and then we're now able to do more content. You know, we're able to bring in John and Dan and you know Duncan Fench from the UFC Performance Institute and have more opportunities to get this kind of learning experience for us all. So... If you're not subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button. If you like the content, please leave a rating. Okay, so let's get on with the interview. Welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. Uh, I'd like to give a warm welcome to our guest today, uh, John Ryder and his strength and conditioning coach, Dan Lawrence. Uh, we'll bring it to you first, John. How are things? How's uh, lockdown been? As I'm sure that it's been quite uh, frustrating. Got big plans for 2020, but I'm sure that you're... Uh, You've been training hard and getting ready back to being back in action very soon. Yeah, I mean, thanks for the intro. Normally I'm introduced as like, it's Dan Lawrence with one of the clients <laughs> he works with. So <laughs> it's nice to be mentioned first. Um, yeah, I mean, going off the momentum we had last year, we were looking to get a, a great 2020. All, as Dan would say, all the big rocks were in place for a, for another great year. And um yeah, we didn't um, we didn't plan for this. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've made do. I've um, got off to give a shout out to Perium Fitness. They've uh, sorted me right out, so I can keep up with my strength and conditioning work at home. And yeah, just running miles, taking taking inches off my legs with the run I've been doing, and just just back in the gym now boxing. So I'm I'm pleased. Is it like just getting on the bike again? Is it? Or are you feeling a little bit rusty? Or are you feeling ready to go again? I'm surprisingly a lot sharper than I thought I would be. So 
I think the good thing that has come from this period of time away from the gym is all the little niggles have got to heal up and you've kind of been forced to recover a bit with your hands. I had a little niggle in the hand, so that's that's healed up nicely. So yeah, I mean where where we've lost a bit of momentum in the in the weights room and the in the gym, we're we're healed up nicely, ready to go when we can finally get started. Yeah, it's it's good that you've actually said that because a lot of boxers see it as a negative that they're being taken away from the gym, but actually it could be a positive because as a, as a professional boxer, you're always wanting to be out again and be back in competition, but you've actually recognised this lockdown as a bit of a positive to give your body a rest because so many athletes have these niggles in the, in the shoulders, in the elbows, maybe in the knees, but they just think, oh, just get over it, you know, keep pushing on, work around it. But in fact, actually taking yourself away from that is actually give it a chance to heal. Uh, before going any further, I welcome Dan to the podcast. Dan, how are you? And uh, you've had 10 weeks of webinars and remote coaching. Um, are you back in the gym? Are you enjoying uh, doing some face-to-face coaching? Not quite yet. I've Yeah, we're kind of transitioning at the moment. And I think as of next week, I might be in with some of the boxers. Just got to obviously adhere to government guidelines and to see what happens there. I've at first... I wasn't sure about this whole digital era of coaching. Obviously, our hand was forced and it was our only means of staying engaged with our athletes and clients. But I kind of warmed to it over time and got used to it. I think with the odd internet uh, internet issue, it does become incredibly frustrating. I coached a lady this morning and uh, oh, it was an absolute nightmare. The, the internet was terrible, her end. And uh, yeah, that, that was a bit of a pain. But we're, you know, we're doing what we can. As, as we said, you know, adapt and overcome. We're controlled and controllables and uh, working with what we've got, really. So it's been, it's been all right. It's been great, like you've alluded to there with John. Is John's obviously very much a, a glass half full type of guy, as am I. You know, what can we control through this period? And as much as, you know, we might not, might not have the load that we want to be lifting in the gym, um, we can still control a load of other qualities. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've personally done a lot of work myself on myself in terms of reading, you know, I've been plowing through audibles, plowing through the podcasts, um, especially the boxing science podcast, big props to them. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, so now I've, I've had a good time through this period, but definitely chomping at the bit to get back in face to face with the athletes to really, you know, work towards our, our own personal targets. Yeah, I can definitely resonate with that. Um, you know, it's been, it's been good to like kind of find different ways to adapt and, and work on different things and taking a step back from a, a very busy schedule but the reason why we're going to strength and conditioning is not to be sitting on a computer or being in front of the camera we're there to coach and and make athletes fitter faster and stronger and definitely the social element of it as well um so today we're going to be um talking to the pair of you about uh, john's uh, strength and conditioning and the reason why i wanted to get john on the podcast is because I've seen like a, quite a few different interviews on, on Sky Sports, um, on the Toto podcast and how you speak about strength and conditioning shows that you've got a real understanding of it. A lot of people just kind of give the shout out to the strength and conditioning coach, but you actually go in quite a bit of detail. And I think it'll be a good opportunity to kind of tap into what strength and conditioning from, a, from an athlete's perspective, how you've seen that improve your performance and uh, have an impact on your boxing performance but also let Dan kind of um, extend on, on whatever we talk about today to talk about actually some of the technical sides and you know what are the actual methods that you use 
So first of all, John, um, you took you took on strength and conditioning with uh, with Dan. I think it was about start of 2018, late 2017. Am I right? Yeah, we done the I think we done the testing the end of 2017. If I'm yeah. wrong, then um, start of 2018, I was out in LA training with the boys. And a few yeah. of them had already started with Dan, so. Um, I think mid mid midway through camp, Tony said to me, Tony and Ted was talking and Ted's big on his S and C and they 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 had a discussion. They was just saying that that's what I was really lacking. So Tony I think he texted Dan or rang Dan from LA and said you you didn't ask him, just told him you need to start working with John. And um yeah, I mean I think it was eight weeks before the Jamie Cox fight, we got into the gym, I think it was Monday and Thursday to start with and yeah, I mean I know Dan would have probably liked that to be 16, 20 weeks, but I think we see a lot of results in, in the eight weeks in the lead up. So you were kind of told by Tony to take on strength and conditioning. What was kind of stopping you from taking it on earlier? And what were your perspective of what strength and conditioning actually is before you actually got involved with Dan? For me personally, I mean, my previous coach to Tony was a bit of a dinosaur, an old fellow who just yeah. waits for the enemy and, don't, you don't want to do weights, they'll slow you down and things like that. You'll get too muscly. And I mean, I, I am, I've got the frame where I've only got to look at a dumbbell and I, I'll put mass on. So it's there's a lot of cowboys in this game. And I've, I've seen it with fighters when they have put on too much muscle and they've blown up and they're, they're struggling to make weight. So I've seen the, the, the bad side of it as well. But I've seen, I've seen Danny's a true professional. I see the work he was doing with others. And yeah, I really welcomed the change. Fantastic. So it was eight weeks before the uh, Jamie Cox fight. Um, you just alluded to there that you'd only have to look at a dumbbell and you put on some muscle mass. Uh, Dan, what would be the kind of first kind of observations of John? Um, you know, he's a high level athlete uh, and in a high level fight within eight weeks time, but you have to still uh, kind of develop them foundations of strength and conditioning. What were your first observations and actions in that first, um, that first phase? Yeah, not to change too much, Danny. Um, not to give him information overload and ask him to focus on 20 different things and then we can't apply and implement any of them. John had just come off the back of an incredible performance against, I believe it was Patrick Nielsen, like showreel knockout, which I'm sure you guys, well, I know John's seen because he did it. But, yeah. uh, but that was such an incredible performance. So... I wasn't going to go in there like a bull in a china shop and say, you've got to change this, you've got to change that with a very short time period before, you know, let's, let's be fair, John, I hope you don't mind me saying, which was deemed a 50-50 fight against Jamie Cox at the time. Jamie Cox had come off the loss of, against George Groves and it was a decent performance. Um, so, you know, that was billed as a 50-50. We had eight weeks and again, I use the words control the controllables. We, we had to identify what were our clear outcomes for that period. So we set the outcome of obviously winning the fight and then we you know, reverse engineered the process and put some process-led goals of how we can achieve that outcome. And some simple systems around that would have been you know, tracking heart rate, uh, having a look at his heart rate of what he's getting out of his energy system work, what he's getting out of his boxing sessions with Tony, um, and then how we can influence that and whether there's some errors that we need to improve on from that side of things, but assessing what he does currently at the time. We, based on the energy system side of things, we did do some physiological testing, as, as John mentioned there. You know, we went through some, a, a basic testing battery. And, uh, you know, John's numbers were, were very good, even, you know, coming in a little bit heavy at the time. 
and uh, he still, you know, he hit some some good numbers there from a VO2 match point of view. John won't mind me saying, I think it was like 58, 59. So, you know, the, fun, the fundamentals and foundations were there from his boxing training regardless. What we did identify, though, based on our own testing, you know, force velocity profiling, we looked at SJ, CMJ, and RSI, most importantly, actually, was John... John was very force dominant and then still is incredibly force dominant prior to me coming into the fray and us embarking on this high performance program. So he was very strong, but as we're all well aware here, you know, boxing isn't just about being strong. It's not just about upper limit of force production. It's how quickly can you produce that force, you know, accessed by rate of force development. So we then thought, okay, we probably need to get him a little bit more springy, a little bit more reactive. And uh, then, you know, we did our testing and that actually showed us what, what we thought anyway. We jokingly say John's nickname is the Griller. And uh, as soon as we had him doing some, some basic drills, you know, A-skip drills, um, yes, there was a little bit of a technical model that we had to, uh, you know, work on over time. But it was so evident that how he put force into the ground, he was very force dominant. Um, but there wasn't really that kind of elastic reactive component that we need for boxing. You know, if a boxer, to put this into context for the listeners, you know, if they step back out of range and then they want to transfer that energy back in, then ground contact time is actually pretty important for a boxer as well. So, uh, so that was something that we did. You know, we, we worked on fundamental patterns there, went through some basic drills in our warm-ups, looking around A-skips, pogos, uh, and some basic work there. And just built some fundamental qualities from a strength and conditioning program as well, made his strength super strengths, and then looked at, as I say, making him a lot more reactive through that time. And that comes with, you know, a whole load of a uh, load of different things that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about moving forward. I actually love it how you uh, looked at John's physiology and, and linked it with his actual ring name. You know, we've got two. We've got Jordan Gill, the thrill, which you know you see him in the weights room is is really explosive and springy. Then we've got uh, we've got the vanilla gorilla in Callum Beardo, and he's just like he's just like John, very force dominant, very working on his his max strength, and maybe needs that little bit more kind of reactive strength as well. Um, so, John, we'll go back to John. Um, you start with Dan, and the the perspective of strength and conditioning massively changes. You're not just lifting heavy weights; you're doing um, you know, you're doing pogo taps, you're doing high jumps. What are the exercises that you recognize as being probably ones that have made the biggest changes or the ones that have the biggest transfer towards your boxing performance? Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're fond of a, a trap bar. Um, so we use, we use that a lot. But also like the, um, the, the split squats, when we've got the, the safety bar split squats, one-legged work, I just feel get a lot of work good work with that and it's more relative to a boxing stance as such where mm. it's not just feet side by side shoulder width apart you've got the, the left leg forward right foot back and more replicate of a of throwing a punch to speak yeah so you you more associate with the lower body work rather than like some of the upper body because a lot of like kind of boxers in the past with strength conditioning and focus on like doing press-ups and sit-ups you kind of like, like look at the lower body work as being the most impactful. Yeah, I feel feel for for me. I, I mean, I, I do enjoy the the upper body work. Um, more more the explosive stuff like that like firing up the dumbbells and then maybe followed by like an explosive press up. But um, no, I do feel that especially for me being so force dominant that that, that them kind of lower body work workouts do benefit me a lot more. Wicked. So. 
you worked with Dan for that first eight weeks, but you've been together for about two and a half years now. Um, when was the point where you thought, right, strength and conditioning is having a massive impact on my boxing performance? Um, I think it's not so much in camp, it's, it's what you do in the period of like between fights and just keeping up to date and just keeping yourself working, just, just ticking over with it. I mean, it's important to be in the gym, punching and keeping fit on the road, but I also think it's, it's important to keep the muscles going with, with the strength work and we're not putting out big numbers and doing big long sessions, but we're, we're getting good quality work in, we're checking in twice a week even more on the phone during the week, but we're, we're getting good work in. And then when you do hit the camp, it's not such a shock to the system to, to get back into the, the heavier weights and the, the explosive work. There's a good base there, which is, is nothing lost. Yeah. It's great. Like saying that because it's like, there's no such thing as a, like a, a training camp. It's more like a, a progressive kind of training process. And that's what I say to a lot of our athletes. I'm sure that Dan will say the same. Um, you know, no kind of camp looks the same. Uh, we're always looking to keep progressing our athletes. So it's great that you're, that you're saying that. Um, in terms of kind of having an impact on your, on your boxing performance, um, what kind of physical changes have we seen, Dan, with, with John? You know, he alluded to the testing, what he came at um, like in, in, in late 2017, 2018. What are the key improvements that you've actually seen from a strength and conditioning perspective? Yeah, I think we'll touch on there. Like, firstly, great, really great to hear John talking about, you know, the hand-supported split squats and some of the movements there in terms of joint angle specificity. That's why we've done that. John is incredibly strong through the lower body, which is probably why he enjoys it so much because he throws throws up some some crazy numbers. We train in a gym in in town, and uh, there's definitely an audience at times when he's lifting those those weights. You know, he, he really gets gets involved in it. So. Um, John, with our initial testing, I, I do have some numbers here, and you know, John, as I've asked him prior to this, you know, he, he says, says he's an open book, so I'm happy to share a couple. I don't want to delve too deep into the actual, um, you know, specifics to it to be brutally honest. But uh, look, John was very strong anyway. Two years ago, he, when we did our initial testing, his trap bar deadlift was 180 kilos. He's now up at 230 kilos on that specific lift. Um, some of the other movements, uh, force velocity profiling, he threw up 150 kilos on the 31st of May 18, and he moved that at 0 0.55 meters per second. Um, he then added, basically within a four-week period on the 30th of June, he then increased load by 20 kilos and moved it at the same given velocity. So yeah. we, do, we do track all of that. It's, listen, it's not just about up, down, forwards and back, put more weight on the bar in the sagittal plane. If it was easy as us making our athletes stronger in the sagittal plane, then you know we'd probably be acting like we've cra cracked this a long, long time ago or be out of the job. So um, yes, we've increased strength in the sagittal plane. We've raised up a limit of force production. We've, as mentioned, made John's strengths prior to embarking on the strength conditioning program, super strengths. But, you know, we've looked at a lot more than that. We're working in a rotational sport. So we, uh, we need to get them, you know, transferring energy from foot to fist in the most optimal way. And there's so many different sequences, as, we, as we're well aware, from, you know, ankle all the way up through the chain to the fist that play a huge role in that. So a big one for us, Danny, was, you know, looking at CMJ and SJ, they were, and again, John won't mind me saying this, they were low. They, they were very low for an elite level athlete. And again, what we have to talk about here is these are, elite level boxers but they're not necessarily elite level athletes at the time okay yeah. so again if we look at sprinting 
you know, John does a lot of the great work with Tony Sims, you know, on the track or on the steps, etc. So something we looked at was the, you know, the, the biomechanics and the technical model of sprinting. How can I improve and influence positions to make sure John adheres to a, a proper technical model so he can put force into the ground in the most advantageous and optimal way with proper mechanics. But then also, so I look at this as a three pronged approach, sorry, slightly going off piece, but I'll kind of bring it back around in a second. Does he have the range and the adequate mobility to access specific positions first and foremost, as we know, a lot of boxers don't. Then can he get into, so once he has the range, can he get into and own these positions from a technical model point of view? So can they get into the desired degrees of you know, hip flexion? Can they um, get adequate dorsiflexion through the ankle and hold and own that position if we're looking at a technical model of sprinting? And then finally, can they own and replicate that movement over time? So do they have, yes, if they're strong enough to put force into the ground and adhere to the technical model, but can they do that repeatedly over the, the course of, you know, the desired duration that we're looking to achieve? So it's kind of a three-pronged approach. Can they get there? Can they uh, get into the position and own the position? And then can they execute that repeatedly over time? So we looked at a lot of that. We threw a lot of that into the warm-ups from basic kind of technical model of, of sprinting. But then we also looked at does he have the physical attributes to be able to own these positions and optimize performance from that way? So yeah, some of our reactive like CMJ and SJ just weren't good enough. Um, and we saw incredible improvements there. I won't say the numbers, but I will say that we saw a 2.4 inch improvement um, on CMJ over the course of a three month period. We saw a 1.8 inch increase in SJ. So squat jump, uh, sorry for the listeners, CMJ, uh, counter movement jump, utilization of elastic energy, eccentric loading, and then exploding SJ is um, cutting out the use of that kind of eccentric loading. So we pause for three seconds in the bottom position and it's a little bit more kind of force dominant as opposed to being reactive and utilization of the stretch shortening cycle. And, um, and that improved by 1.8 inches. But the big one for us, Danny, was RSI, you know, uh, flight time over ground contact time. We knew, and you know, I said it, said it to John, I said it to the athletes, is we want to be a kangaroo. We want to be as reactive and springy as possible. So again, to give the listeners some context if we've got the griller on one end of the continuum or the vanilla griller i actually thought of callum beardo as well in terms of actual characteristics with yeah, john yeah. very very similar makeup so it's interesting you said that and sometimes as practitioners we can we can see that prior to doing our physiological testing and profiling anyway but yeah so if you've got a griller on one end of the continuum and a kangaroo on the other end of the continuum you know um yeah great if you want to be super strong but unfortunately we're not powerlifters here then can we get him more reactive? So then can we bring them to the other end of the continuum without affecting, you know, upper limit of force production and strength? So, um, so a big win for us was once we improved RSI, which we did considerably, uh, that then I knew that I'd improved the athlete over that eight week period to give him the best chance of performing his sport at a better, um, you know, and winning the fight in essence. That's what we do. You know, we're not doing this for our egos just to improve numbers in the gym. We're doing this to make them better athletes and make them better fighters and ultimately win on fight night, you know? Yeah, I like how, you know, you've, you've, you've given the information there, but give the, give the wisdom of that it takes more than just improving your numbers on testing and some things that aren't measurable. Um, I like how you said about the running mechanics, massive factor for boxing because they do a load of running. So if they're ineffective with their running technique, then it's going to limit their performance during running, but also increasing that likelihood of injury. And then uh, the gorilla to the kangaroo, that sounds like a documentary of, of your life story, eh, John? 
Is that going to be a new ring name, the kangaroo? No, we'll, we'll stick with the gorilla, but I have become a lot more springy. And I mean, after this period of time, I don't know, we might have to go back to work on it. But um, yeah. no, there's, there's, I could see the improvements and especially going back to the running mechanics. My, my time's improved on the track, on the stairs, on the triangle and even generally just on my runs, on my, my longer distance stuff. I feel like I've, I've brought my minutes per mile down quite considerably and just feel running a lot better. Less back aches, less aches in the knee. And just, um, yeah, love, I think it was all down to the, the mechanics of running properly. So you're saying about like the, the numbers, getting, getting like increases in, in physical performance, does that give you uh, increased confidence when, on fight night? Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, um, it, it's one of the things now with the strength conditioning. If you're not doing it, then you're getting left behind. And I feel like that's where a lot of fighters need to catch up and, and get with the time. So this sport's moving forward all the time now. And the strength conditioning is a big part of it. You can deal with the running and, and the boxing you want, but you need to be with the, with the times on the, on, in the weight room and, and keeping up with it. Otherwise, you're really missing out big time. Absolutely. Most of the stuff that we've talked about uh, in this podcast already has been predominantly strength. We've talked a little bit about running, but like strength conditioning sports science is much more than what we do in the weight room. It's something that we do away from the weight room. You now we're talking about nutrition and recovery. Um, how much did you, uh, did you focus on your recovery before Dan got involved and kind of what changes were made uh, at your time away from the gym? Um, well, listen, I probably still go up a bit more than I should do in between fights and I fight possibly twice a year at the moment. So yeah, I go up way higher than I should, but I'm, I'm trying to be the ultimate pro, but I'm still, I'm still working on myself a bit. Mm. But, um, I think during camp, I mean, no stone is left unturned and I mean, it's, it's been said that me and Dan moved into a flat in London for, I think it was three weeks out from the Kenneth Smith fight and I mean, we, we was in LA for two weeks beforehand for the fight in Vegas. So it showed that it worked well, be it being locked away and just fully focused on. And Dan yeah. was arranging the food, cooking the food, and I was cooking a bit as well. And just, just getting the right stuff in uh, at the right times. And yeah, a big focus on, on recovery with with food, with whether it be protein shakes, with the normal techs, with the... Uh, Cairo chambers but just just making sure that we was we was all on the recovery as well adding up every single percentage yeah so even making sure that I was in bed early getting me eight hours and just mm. uh, I'm, I'm not sitting up on the phone or watching tv too late telling you off and uh, all I want to know is living with Dan how long does he spend on his hair in the morning because I need some tips especially after lockdown <laughs> well to be fair I I don't actually think he took that long. I oh, think a lot of the times I was out before him and then other times he was out before me, so I, I couldn't really I say how much he spends on it. I was going to get on phone to ask for tips when my hair got too long. I was thinking, right, how do I get that slick back style like Dan Lawrence? I wouldn't know he's still got it so slick back. He must have a barber somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, secret barber. Um, so it's saying about uh, recovery, Dan. Uh, what are the kind of key fundamentals uh, in terms of like recovery and nutrition for you? What did you kind of employ with John when you was kind of uh, living with him? Yeah, it's John mentioned about the big rocks earlier, and obviously there's there's two you've mentioned there, Danny, that feed into each other. You know, the sleep 
sleep, nutrition, and as we've mentioned, training are definitely three of them. We can then throw kind of hydration um, into the mix as well as for me, which over is all encompassing and oversees everything is the mindset and mentality of a fighter, which is something, you know, we'll talk about in a minute as well. But in regards to sleep, as John alluded to, you know, sleep duration, sleep quality are obviously the very big wins that don't cost anything, you know, get yeah. yourself right, create that sleep environment. Again, as John mentioned, no blue light exposure, which is easier said than done. And, you know, John was very honest there with his own assessment of his, himself and how he can improve and lit, not, we haven't cracked it. None of us have cracked it. We're all working to get better each and every day, you know, whether it be 1% better or what, but all of the other stuff, the Normatec, the Theragun and all of this stuff that we've gone out and outsourced is, and the cryotherapy is great, but it's only great once you have your house in order. And I'm not saying we don't have our house in order. We do now have our house in order, John, but just for anyone listening is build the fundamentals and big rocks first. You can get a very quick win with increasing sleep duration and quality to then optimize recovery to then feed into greater outputs and greater performance improvements in your sessions. You don't need to be chasing the quick limitless pill or, you know, the Normatec or the Cryo or whatever, which are, are great. And, you know, we've added them on, but they are very much the cherry on top of the cake. You've got to have a cake first. So um, the sleep's obviously been a big one as mentioned and the nutrition has been huge for us. Like John, you know, his performances have shown that his weight making strategy has shown that we don't just, you know, crash the weight. We start our weight making strategy on the first day of camp. We identify the date of fight night. We work, you know, where we should be at. We have a strategy of each and every week. This is where we should be at just to make sure we're not deviating too far away from that and giving us too much work to do later in the camp. And that comes with not just it being a dictatorship from me, you know, that I, I listen to John of how he feels his experience over the, over the years. Also, you know, Tony as well. And together collectively as a team, we put that strategy in place and then we have to execute. So it was a blessing, you know, working in, uh, with John in LA and then obviously um, in London as well, pre Smith fight, because we could just go all in on it. You know, I'm, I'm all in, John knows I'm all in anyway, but uh, it was, uh, it was great to just, yeah, take care of everything. And John made a huge sacrifice there himself. He just had, you know, the birth of his second, second child. And uh, we, we all made commitments there. And um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, being at home and, not having great sleep, not having great nutrition. We just know that that's not going to feed into the optimal outcome in terms of performance. So John took himself away from that, was very self-aware. And then we could just put the blinkers on, dial in on that end outcome of November the 23rd, you know, at the time. Absolutely. Um, a good quote that uh, Dom Ingle always says is that you can't out-train a bad diet. And I think about that not only from diet side, but recovery side as well. Mm. If you haven't got everything in place then you're taking x amount of percentages off the actual training effects you know all the hard work in the gym is almost going to waste if you haven't got these kind of big rocks in place um you've used that term quite a lot i've heard john say it as well you know the use of these analogies uh john um does that help you kind of understand where dan's coming from with some of these it does yeah i mean i was a bit taken back when he gave me the kiss analogy and um yeah, I wonder what he was getting at. Then he explained <laughs> it, and it was keep it simple, stupid. So, yeah, all right. Well, I'm with you on that one. But um, yeah, no, he's um, you just got to bear. Listen, it's it's a laugh. This is a hard game we're involved in. So these little analogies we can have a laugh at and have a crack for a couple of minutes, and in between session, it's just it, it's nice, it's welcomed, it, it it eases the pressure sometimes, and makes it a bit more enjoyable. I think it's good. I think it's quality coaching as well because it's like it's ingraining what we're actually saying, you know, 
Dan could come from a very technical perspective, explaining all the science to you, but and then you're going one in one ear out of the other. But if you have something that you can kind of relate relate with as well, and then that's ingrained with you, and you see it like with like a lot of top quality boxers have them positive affirmations where they say things over and over again. So when you th- like something like Floyd Mayweather saying hard work, dedication, and I've got like a video ways to like doing all that stuff. You know, as a strength and conditioning coach, I think it's really good of you, Dan, building them analogies and ingraining it into your athlete as well, because you know, what are the big rocks, you know, nutrition, recovery, uh, strength training, stuff like that. And that kind of builds up the full kind of process without making it too complicated. Um, just on that, Danny, sorry. Thank, yeah. Thanks for that as well. And it's also like, we're not just saying this to, again, feed our own ego, talking force yeah. velocity curve and talking all of this scientific terminology. The end goal is to improve the athlete, to improve performance. So if they don't understand and buy into the methods and understand the why behind these methods, what is the point? And that's why, and yeah, we have a joke about it, but I do that for a reason because they get it. They understand the why, you know, we like, yeah, it comes with a cue and it comes with knowing the why because, and I don't just do it just to, you know, for it to be a joke or for it to be a laugh i do it for a for a reason to actually reach a performance outcome so it's the art of communication i suppose you know so i appreciate that uh, you know john's taken that on board so yeah brilliant good stuff so we're going to go a little bit uh away from uh strength conditioning now john um i'll talk to you about obviously your, your recent form uh you know from that patrick nielsen fight he went on a four or five ko run uh jamie cox and uh, the guy in las vegas included as well and you know that took a lot of kind of boxing pundits by surprise this run and obviously it took it took a lot of people by surprise when you put how well you performed against calm smith um a lot of you a lot of people thought it won it including myself what you know, coming back from like kind of like a series of, of losses in your career, what kind of what things kind of change in your not only your training but your mindset going into these fights? I think um, I think just the the extra eight pound from moving up to super middleweight. I mean, um, yeah. my first fight at super middleweight was Adam Etches. Um, yeah. Then I went in against Rocky Fielding, got beat on a, another close decision that I I thought I won for the British title. Um, then I was I was at a bit of a crossroads again where I didn't know what was coming. Patrick Nielsen come back, um, good fight, very highly ranked and a well worth risky fight taking. If beat him and I would I'd be highly ranked in all the governing bodies. So yeah, I mean it was it, I wouldn't say it was calculated because I, I had no really. So took that risk and I mean not looking back at all. Went on fight Jamie Cox. Um, a fight that I thought would be a, a very tough fight. I didn't f- see it going three rounds. I thought it would be a probably a real hard, hard fight. Maybe maybe a late stoppage. Maybe I'd outla- outwork him, outlast him and, and stop him late on. Um, going into the Sorokin fight again, I, I thought, thought the same. A tough, hard fight. Didn't realise I'd get mm. cut early on and, and have difficulty handling him. Um, again, got him out of there with a body shot. Uh, then we're we're on onto the the Vegas fight and like that. I mean, just my self belief in that run of fights and just I think 
through listening to the the podcast and the and, and the audio books and the the bit of motivational videos on on youtube and stuff i think it's just really helped and not having to kill myself that last week and not eating and barely drinking to, to make the weight at, for what i was doing at 160 is it's dangerous and mm. I, I mean you you know the science behind it um i mean i've i've been in camp a lot with a lot of the ingle fighters sparring with kel and billy joe so i've seen a lot of the work they do that you, they've they've got off you mm. and i just believe that this, these extra eight pounds for, for me have been mm. invaluable and if i had done it two years before then who knows where i'd be at but i've, I've been on a great run of form and i believe that i, I can only keep going so long without the snc so i think the snc coming at the right time and i've not not, not looked back i mean i've got to fight in vegas on on one of the biggest cards yeah. or the biggest card of the year by the aj card that year mm. and then um I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, a box ticked off, a dream come true to box out there, and then to fight Callum Smith for a world title in Liverpool, which I feel I won, is um, just just a great a great feat, I suppose, especially to go to a champion's backyard. But yeah. didn't get the decision, didn't get the nod, but it's not deterred me, and I'm more determined now to come back and and prove that that was wrong. I think you gained a lot of a uh, lot of supporters that night um, in Liverpool because obviously. Uh, you shocked quite a lot of people, um, and you know, it were a fantastic uh, performance and showing that you are truly a world level fighter. So, hats off to you. Let's talk about that, um, that Las Vegas fight because he was supposed to fight, uh, was it David Lemieux? And then it got changed, uh, like one or two weeks before that. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I was flying out to LA on the Friday and. I think Thursday night I got a call saying Lemu's injured, um, yeah. hurt his hand. They're going to work on a replacement for him. I just thought I just need to get on that plane tomorrow and get to LA. And otherwise, if I don't, they're just going to pull me off the show. And I thought I've got yeah. too many people book tickets to get out there and flight. So yeah. just need to make it happen. Got out there. Um, I think I got a, got an opponent pretty quick in Akaway. They um, there was talks of another fella. I think Stephen Butler. He ended up fighting last year for the middleweight world title and got beat by Morata. But um yeah now just chuffed we had a we had a great week in Garcia's sparring. Um and then a good week in Vegas getting the the final bits in place, uh, the the final short sharp sessions and yeah. just just a, a great experience. How did you kind of readdress your mindset? Obviously we saw that year he's talked about Anthony Joshua have a change of opponent with Millen and Ruiz and that kind of changing his kind of mindset is obviously is, is prepared for uh, Miller and then getting Andy Ruiz, totally different fighters. Um, what were, what we are kind of things that you had to change in your mindset going into a fight with a totally different opponent on a short, on like a one or two weeks notice? To be honest, nothing really. I mean, we got the list of opponents sent through and me, Dan and Tony sat down in the, in the house we was in and got YouTube up and um, yeah. I'd look at the, the list and we, we saw a car and we just thought he's exactly like the move, come forward, big shots. And just, it was a no brainer. Uh, Stephen Butler was six foot odd, uh, back foot boxer. We'd really have to go looking for him. So for what we'd been training over the 10, 12 weeks, it just made sense to stick to your car way. Very similar style to Lemu, and um, yeah, just what we've been working on. Fantastic. And then you you discuss about the the Rocky Fielding 
uh, defeat. And obviously you've had a couple of other defeats in, in your career um, early on, but then you've kind of elevated yourself to, to world level now. What kind of what kind of things like did you go through to deal with those setbacks to keep moving forward? And what would your advice be to maybe younger fighters that have a loss, or how how would they kind of guide their career following a loss? Um, I think to be honest, the Billy Joe Saunders defeat it, it again. It was close; could have gone any way. I just put it down to experience. He had a lot of twelve rounders. That was my first. Um, the Blackwell fight was the start of my real struggle with making yeah. 160. Again, in the Arnfield fight, didn't have much and just in survival mode. Um, but up at 168 against Fielding, I felt like I, I felt like I did win and I'd done enough, but this went against me. But who knows? I mean, not looking to the future, but if I'd have been on the SNC work from then, would it have been a different story? I mean, I, I had been badly hurt in the 10th. Would I have had, had it in me to finish him off and, and maybe bully him a bit more through the fight? Good stuff. What, what advice would you give to uh, a pro boxer just starting out on their career? Obviously, you've been a pro for, is it about 10 years now? Yeah, kind of 10 years now, yeah. Yeah, so, what, veteran, yeah. Yeah, so what advice would you be giving a, a professional boxer just starting his way on, onto the pro ranks? Just, Just don't take it to heart. I mean... It's an experience, and like I've, I was listening to Fifty Cent, his audio book, and he's like, "You're going to take way more losses than you are wins." So it's just a you come back from. So just keep plugging away, self-evaluate, reassess, what watch your mistakes, watch other people's mistakes, watch what they do good, watch what they do bad. Just be an open book with it. Just be willing to learn, be willing to listen, and just be willing to develop all the time. Fantastic. Great words of advice. I thought you were actually going to uh, quote some lyrics there when you said that you'd been listening to 50 Cent. <laughs> no, the beat weren't coming, so I just thought I'd, I'd stick to the words. Uh, so what, what's what's coming up for you? Uh, obviously, like with this pandemic, everything's been kind of tossed up in the air. Have you got any kind of wind of a, a fight that you're going to be preparing for? Nothing, nothing as of yet. I mean, I'm still hopeful for a Smith rematch. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's, a, that's an arena fight, so I can't really see that getting put on in the back garden. No. Um, I'm open. I'll, I'll need a good camp to get back in after this extended period off. But um, I'm looking forward to getting back in the gym, doing some trap bar deadlifts, some uh, some some split squats, and uh, just getting back to it. And I'm not. I'm not. I don't need to rush back in for a fight. I just want to do things do things properly. But hopefully, we'll get some news soon. Fantastic. So just to finish off, uh, Dan is saying about John getting back into the gym, doing some trap bar deadlifts. What are the kind of go-to kind of methods for, for boxers just in general uh, returning to the gym? Obviously, we don't want to be doing too much too soon. I think exactly that, yeah. Don't, uh, and I've had this chat with a few of the lads is, and, and general population clients across the board is that don't just because the gyms are open thinking, oh, I'm you know, chopping at the bit to do a 230 kilo trap bar deadlift or whatever it may be specific yeah. to that individual is we use this period to work on a number of different qualities. Obviously max strength hasn't been one of those because we haven't had the means to reach that outcome, though we have worked on a, a load of other things that we've mentioned previously. So I think you should be, if you've continued training, have had a proper kind of 
preparation and preparatory period before getting back to the gym. But um, I'd build yourself back up gradually, you know, maybe, you know, if you're training for body composition reasons, maybe don't go down the route of, um, you know, training a specific muscle group on one given session, you know, maybe do some, some form of total body workouts at sub-maximal loading and, uh, and then build yourself back up with a with kind of an extended second preparatory phase of training before you then uh, ramp things up. So uh, yeah, just don't, don't go crazy with it. You know, you don't want to induce yourself upon too much stress too early. Um, I think, you know, John mentioned about it, about kind of mechanical stress and, you know, making sure your muscles keep ticking over and, you know, same thing. So making sure, you know, your muscles keep ticking over, making sure you don't dump a load of stress on the central nervous system as well by, by exposing yourself to heavy loads. And something we've done really well through this period is build robustness, build, you know, tissue quality, tendon health. There's loads of stuff that we've, we've been able to do around that. Um, but that said, that's very different to going from being able to, I don't know what John, um, and John, you beat me to the punch, giving uh, John at Perry and Fitness a shout out. By the way, that was on on my tattoo list, so thanks for that. <laughs> but, but John, uh, John at Perry has been absolutely brilliant. We were struggling to get some weights for uh, for John Ryder, and um, he went above and beyond. You know, he went and uh, dropped you what a couple of dumbbells, a kettlebell, and a plyometric box. I think it was. Yeah, it took me right out. Yeah. So, um, so put that into context. You know, John's got what two twenty-five kilo dumbbells there, and again, we've mentioned he's doing two hundred and thirty kilo trap bar deadlifts and a 200 kilo hand supported split squat so there's huge you know difference between the upper and lower numbers there so just doing 225 yes we've given him a bit of a stimulus we've manipulated tempo movement we played around with you know isometric pauses we've chosen our pairing of exercises quite uh, quite cutely as well to reach an outcome but um but we need to go we need to gradually build yourself back up through the loading strategies to get you to that end goal again you know yeah absolutely um I'm having like kind of flashbacks to like kind of first sessions back for a lot of athletes and I'll just do like mobility work and like I did one with Jamie McDonnell uh, he had been doing strength conditioning for quite a while and uh, this was last year and um, it just I just basically did mobility and I just went you will be sore from this so there's no point in doing like a really hard session you'll be sore just from doing like a plate squat to press with five kilos next day he couldn't walk so yeah. imagine imagine if i actually pushed him to do some like kind of heavy goblet squats or something like that again it's knowing your athlete isn't it and, and minimal effective dose uh, john will john will like this one stimulate not annihilate so uh, yes that's another one we use quite frequently and i think that's the goal is look do you know what let me end with another analogy let's go with the mountain analogy you don't reach the summit without climbing the mountain earn the right to progress so whereas you might have been at the summit previously with a 230 kilo trap bar deadlift and so high load and probably high amounts of volume because you're able to tolerate that to allow for positive adaptations to occur, you had to continue in that in that vein of working. But now you're probably back down here. You need to climb that mountain again gradually. So um, yeah, build yourself back up accordingly. Don't uh, yeah, just leave the ego at home as well for the guys and girls out there. And then uh, in 10 weeks time, John will be back from a gorilla into kangaroo yeah <laughs> good stuff okay I'll be, guys I'll be a kangaroo deadlift in 250 this time there we go so that is that's an impressive uh, deadlift by the way i think i think that's probably the strongest boxer out there surely 250 kilo uh, deadlift oh no we've got we got to build up to 250 we're at 230 at the moment so 230. Um, get, get, let me get this camp, next camp out of the way and i'll be up there yeah, I think, I think challenge has been set. 
Yeah. I think we need to put it out there that who has got the strongest deadlift. Well, we're Eddie Hall and Thor becoming boxers. <laughs> Five hundred kilos. I think we <laughs> that, that competition has just uh, just birthed and died within like five <laughs> seconds. Okay, guys, uh, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thanks for your insights. It's been fantastic. I'm sure a lot of uh, boxers, athletes, coaches will take a lot from it. So, thanks a lot for your time, Dan and John. I wish you well uh, returning to the gym. Thank you, mate. Cheers, buddy. That brings us to the end of, of this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions about the topics raised during this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us either on boxing.sci at gmail.com or on Instagram at Boxing Science. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, which is Boxing Science, and our online membership, boxingscience.co.uk. We have a brand new section to our Boxing Science membership, Lockdown Workouts, where we share a range of different exercises and full workouts based on limited equipment or zero equipment. So no matter what access to facilities you have, there's a range of workouts that can help get you fitter, faster and stronger during lockdown. If you're a regular to the Boxing Science podcast and you're liking the content so far, please leave us a review. Hopefully you're going to be leaving a five-star review because this will help us grow our podcast, which will in turn help us develop more content for you to share the Boxing Science training methods and research. Okay, guys, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode.